Welcome to this week's edition of Debriefing the Law. I am Joel Oster. I am Chris Marone. And Chris, I am very jealous of you. We are here. We're going to talk yes. about March Madness Part 2. It's the Final Four. I am a huge basketball fan, and you are on your way to New Orleans. Chris, to watch your you, KU Jayhawks take on the Final Four. You live a blessed life. I cannot believe you're going to probably my favorite city, oh, and then city. my Jayhawks can be there in the Final Four. Are you going to try to find a way to, to get in and watch the, 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 the Final Four? I was, uh, but I'm bringing my wife with me because I proposed to my wife 10 years ago in New Orleans. So we're going back for kind of this anniversary trip. So I'm going to see if I can sneak in and if she would still be married to me if I chose our anniversary weekend to go watch some KU Jayhawks. That would be pushing the boundaries there. True love. She's a forgiving woman. It could happen. I did a StubHub search, and I think you can go find some tickets in the outer, right next to the bathroom uh, for about 500 bucks, maybe. I think it was like uh, after expenses. But you can find some tickets <laughs> for like 19000 if you want to sit pretty up there in the suites uh, or, or on the floor. But, hey, I am I am very envious of you down there. Uh, you need to check out Cafe Dumont. They of have course. the best coffee. And I know you don't really care for uh, coffee. But they have, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, beignets, which yeah. are powdered sugar donuts. They are delicious right there in the French quarters. That yes. is one of the spots I always go and hang out at because there's a usually a jazz player now for listeners who don't normally go to new orleans let me just tell you one time i went to the cafe dumont and i mm-hmm. you can sit out there you're it's outside cafe yep, it's beautiful. you're drinking your coffee you're eating your beignets and there was a a street performer playing his saxophone right in front of me it was a lot of fun. he looked oh. like some kind of homeless a street performer just playing the saxophone doing a good job well, that night, I decided to go to a jazz concert there in the French quarters. I went to a really Beautiful. nice, it was a much more expensive ticket, right? Everyone there was in yep. suits, that kind of thing. Oh, of course. That same sax player was playing Lee Sax in that, that concert. So, yeah, when you're out there at the Cafe Du Monde, those are real musicians that you are listening to. So, I am so jealous. Now, do you like oysters? I do. I do. Right. I do. I do. You, you've got to do this here. Take your wife to it. It is called Drago's. Have you ever been to Drago's in New Orleans? I have not. All right. Google it when you get there. It is advertised. They have on their menu the best morsel of food served anywhere in New Orleans. It's right there in Drago's. It is a grilled oyster on the half shell. It oh, is yeah. fabulous. I am so envious Ooh. of you. If you go there, take a picture of it and send it to me, and then I will violate the Tenth Commandment by coveting your current situation. But hey, I can't wait. We got a lot to talk about today. There's a My lot gosh. of stuff going on in the world of law and sports. This is March Madness because of our basketball situation but also because of what's going on there at the Senate. And I want to revisit what we talked about last week involving Judge Katanji Brown Jackson's Mm -hmm. uh, sin confirmation hearings. And so we talked about it a little bit last week, and I think we both agreed Mm -hmm. it's a circus. I mean, this whole scenario is somewhat fraudulent. It's not real. She's not really there to answer questions. She is there to avoid the knockout punch and making a mistake. She does not want to get Robert Bork, where Robert Bork mm-hmm. kind of lashed out at the people asking him questions. That became a spectacle, and then it derailed his confirmation. So that's kind of what these judges uh, seek to do, avoid the knockout punch. 
Right. Well, there was, she had two answers that I want to just focus on here for just a bit. Because at first blush, the, these answers were just seemed as, oh, that's just trivial. I mean, that's just some kind of gotcha question that was asked by the questioner. It's not really a real question. But I want to actually dig in a little bit deeper because it has been bothering me all week. I can't let it go. So, Chris, I know we're on the opposite ends of the conservative liberal right. spectrum, but I want to have this discussion. Yeah. Two, two questions here. The first one is her answer. When she was asked, can you define what a woman is? She said, I can't because I'm not a biologist. Chris, that's been bothering me all week. I, I just, at first, I just kind of dismissed it as being uh, mm -hmm. it's just a circus atmosphere. But the more I'm thinking about it, you, you are telling me you can't answer, you don't know how to tell the difference between a man and a woman. You can't define what a woman is. I don't know, Chris. Uh, well, what is your take on that? I, I don't have an issue with that. She's speaking outside of the fact that she doesn't have expertise in making scientific determinations of sex. And rather not assuming what is going on. What what I feel, because it's a circus, what Senator Blackburn was trying to do was she wanted to lock her into saying that there was only two genders, which is false because gender is a social construct. And I don't think Justice or Senator Blackburn understands that. She wanted to lock Justice Brown into saying that there's a male and a female, and then she wanted to go on some huge tirade about things that are not even relevant to the proceedings like every other senator on both sides did i get that but she was asked if she could define what a woman is and she said no i'm not a biologist now this is why it has really gotten to me I mean, uh -huh. we have kind of lost sight of the forest of the trees i mean uh -huh. when when you have gender reveal parties right hey you're pregnant is it a is it a boy uh -huh. or a girl we say oh it's a boy or it's a girl we don't wait five years to ask the mm -hmm. um uh the the baby now a, a child what sex that that baby wants to be we look at the genitalia and say ah it's a boy or it is a girl I, I don't understand why she could not offer that simple definition let me put it in a different context judges rule on sex discrimination cases all the time in right. fact it's a constitutional violation if you discriminate right. based upon sexes right you have to understand as a judge the difference between a man and a woman. And whenever you have a sex right. discrimination case in court, mm -hmm. you don't ask for expert testimony on that issue. It's assumed the judge knows how to tell the difference between a man and a woman. Is that mm -hmm. changed now? Or are we oh, just yeah. to accept her answer as a trite answer and we're just going to you know, say, oh, that's just a circus. She was just trying to not play along and answer the questions. And we're not going to treat it too seriously because I, I, I'm having a problem with that. And I and I totally get your 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 problem with that, Joel. Um, in Scientific American, they did a series of articles spanning from October of 2018 to up till last year talking about the oversimplomatic idea of two sexes. Now, for the law, sex discrimination is very clear. If you're discriminated on based on the sex that you identify with. If you are, and it's not like today I feel like I'm a woman and you're discriminating against me. There are factors that go into understanding how you identify as your sex or as your gender, more likely. Um, but 
there's more to the the XY XX chromosome argument that again I'm not a biologist but in reading these stories and as as um Justice Jackson had said in there I wanted to find out more about what's going on there's a great great articles in Scientific American that talk about it that are very non like I believe Scientific American is non-political it's just a discussion of biology and what is coming about now that biologists have more uh, equipment and technology to figure it out but and I understand your argument of you're born we look at your genitalia we assign male and or female based on reproductive organs but in the changing world of what we have going on right now um defining for the sake of rights privileges you have to look at the individual as a as as that as an individual so maybe we are going to be changing into uh, a time where expert testimony is going to be needed to prove that this person who may have been born with male genitalia a- identifies and should be treated as a female under the law. Now, I am not willing to go that there where right. I believe you just said that the sex discrimination is based upon what gender you identify with. I, I don't think that's the yeah. basis of our of our um, equal protection mm-hmm. laws. But nonetheless, I do get that there's a certain movement to push the law in that direction. And maybe mm-hmm. this would have been an opportunity to highlight that and have some conversation. Is that where you want to push the law, Judge uh, uh, Jackson? Is that mm-hmm. Let's have a discussion about that. Instead, she said, I'm not a biologist. I can't offer that distinction. Now, right. let me give you another context why I have a problem with this. I don't think right. she was being 100% forthright. I don't know if that's true or if I, let me just go ahead and say my piece. And then we can unpack right. why I have a problem with this. She was also asked by Senator Marsha Blackburn, this question, um, uh, Senator Blackburn said, uh, let me ask you this then United States versus Virginia. The Supreme court struck down VMI's male only admission of policy writing right. for the majority. Justice Ginsburg stated, supposed inherent differences are no longer acceptable accepted as a ground for race or national origin classifications physical differences between men and women however are enduring the the two sexes are not fungible a community made up exclusively of one sex is different from a community composed of both do you agree with justice ginsburg that there are physical differences between men and women that are enduring Okay, that was a question about the VMI case. This is a right. landmark case on women's rights, written by RBG, you know, uh, an icon of yep. the Supreme Court, uh, and surely, uh, you know, um, Ginsburg writing the majority opinion here. That was Ginsburg's main mission in her, her jurisprudence mission is to fight for equality among the sexes. And here Ginsburg said that there are physical differences between men and women that are enduring. So they asked her, okay, well then how do you agree with Justice Ginsburg? Mm-hmm. This was her response. She said, Senator, respectfully, I am not familiar with that particular quote or case. So mm-hmm. it's hard for me to comment as to whether Chris, I, I, I'm struggling with that. That's like right. her being asked a question about abortion saying, oh, the, this whole Roe v. Wade case? I'm not really familiar with that case. Uh, can you tell me a little bit what it is about? Are we to believe that Justice Jackson hadn't actually read VMI? Oh, I 100% she's read VMI. 100%. She's ruled She just said before. she wasn't familiar with the case. Yes, because we're in the middle of a circus and answering questions from Senator Blackburn is a black hole of nothingness. So as I we guess s- I, I, again, we're, we're playing the political game we're, and it's, it's again, it was, and 
I am not a fan of Senator uh, Blackburn for for a multitude of reasons. Okay. But she she was trying to have a gotcha moment. Right. That's what she was trying to have is a gotcha moment. Ha ha, got you. Women are women, men are men. Ha ha, I'm smarter than you. And and Justice Jackson was not playing that game. Or she wanted to know if she agreed with RBG's statement in the VMI. Again, she is. I don't. Uh, I think it was applying. She's not smart enough. Justice Black or Senator Blackburn's not smart enough to have. She was trying to box her in on this idea. That's why all of her questions were about making the delineation. She wanted to box um, Justice Jackson in so that way she could have a gotcha moment. And I, I, I fully believe that she knows the VMI case the same way. I fully believe that Amy Comey Barrett knows the first amendment and what's in it fully believe it. I would agree that she does. Right. But when Amy Comey Barrett was put on the spot to ask what the rights were in the first amendment, she fumbled it. So So your point is that you can have brain farts in the middle of confirmation proceedings. And I will grant you that that is possible. I am also a public speaker and I know sometimes you misspeak. And so to blow one Answer out of proportion. Yes, it might be wrong. It might be uh, isolated by itself, inexcusable in a broader context. Maybe she just misspoke. She's put there on the spot. Maybe she just misspoke. Chris, that actually is is a good point on on that. Uh, I'll give you that one. All right. right. So again, maybe I will stop having a problem with this issue, but the memes (laughs) keep coming about how people will say, oh, they'll be asked a simple question. The answer is, I don't can answer that. I'm not a biologist. I'm not an economist, economist, whatever. And so I'm sure the memes will keep on coming. You know right. what? I actually believe that if people started doing that, we would have less fights on Facebook. If people were like, I'm not a constitutional scholar. Great. Then let's stop having a fight on Facebook, shall we? Oh, like, hold on a second right there. Hold on. I got into one of those this last week and I loved I, it because I, 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 I shouldn't have done it, but someone made it their opinion. I wanted to respond to right. it. From a legal perspective. So I said, well, this actually is what the Constitution says. And the person says, oh, what? Are you a constitutional expert? As a matter of fact, (laughs) yes, I am. You know, actually, it's my job. I'm a lawyer. Not just a normal lawyer. I do constitutional law. And we teach a class around a podcast. Hey, I actually offered. You might want to check out our podcast. We talk about (laughs) these issues. I have a liberal friend on there as well. So your side will be represented. But nonetheless. I'm here. I like that. Whenever you do engage in some kind of, oh, what are you? Are you a, you're not a lawyer. Well, maybe we are. All right. Moving on here now to our next <laughs> issue. Uh, the issue of Clarence Thomas's recusal. All right. Let me set the stage here. The issue here is his wife yep. had sent emails to the White House chief of staff concerning the 2020 election. This is all around the January 6th incident. All right. right. So those emails were a part of the documents to be subpoenaed by Congress when Congress was mm-hmm. wanting some information about correspondence with the White House regarding the January 6th incident. All right. Mm-hmm. Should Thomas have recused himself from any court proceeding dealing with the subpoena of those documents? Now, Chris, I am not a, I, on this. I did a little bit of research. Mm-hmm. I cannot say whether or not Thomas knew that those emails or the, those text messages, messages actually yeah. were from his wife. I, I'm not sure Existed. he actually knew that. I, I know the issue was, should they, should they be allowed to subpoena these documents? I'm not sure the court actually had those documents in its possession when they were ruling on it. But nonetheless, the issue is, should Thomas have recused himself from those cases? Before I go any further, Chris, I'll give you a chance to respond. Yes. And whether or not he knew about it is, 
is neither here nor there. I think he could have recused himself because he was too close to the situation and it has an appearance of impartiality of non-impartiality. I was talking to a couple of my judge friends here in Arizona. Um, three or four of them, we get together, we talk about law and all sorts of stuff. It's a great experience. All of them would lose their seat on the bench, lose their job. If they right. had a political sign in their front yard, supporting one party or another. Okay. So they are hypersensitive to their position of imp- of appearance of and requirement to be impartial in all political dealings. Right. I, and there is this ethical rule, and it does apply right. to judges, that you should recuse yourself from a case if there is an appearance uh, that you cannot be partial in a certain case. Mm-hmm. However, it's important for our listeners to understand that those same ethical rules do not apply to the Supreme Court. Now, before Correct. you get your feathers all up in a... Right. I don't even know what the right phrase for that is. But nonetheless, uh, before you get all, Okay, good. Before you get too upset over this, oh, I mean, judges, Supreme Court judges don't have to be ethical. Right. No, that's not it. No. They don't have the same ethical rules. Correct. And here is why. Below, so we're talking about district court judges, or we're talking about magistrate judges, or we're mm-hmm. talking about appellate court judges. If they recuse themselves... Another judge just steps in. So you don't actually lose that spot there. Another Article Three judge or qualified jurist will, be, will replace that particular judge who recused him or herself. Mm-hmm. But the Supreme Court is a court of nine. So when one judge recuses him or herself, there is no replacement. And that could right. drastically change the outcome uh, of yes. these decisions. So that's why the Supreme Court has said we don't we're not gonna be bound by the same ethical recusal rules because right. the consequences are so much more dire at the Supreme Court level. Right. Also, there is this thought that judges who have spouses, they're professionals and they will not let their spouse's views impact what they do and so the issue then here is well what did clarence thomas know about what his wife was doing just because the wife was an advocate of these kinds of conservative causes does not mean that she shared that with clarence thomas that clarence thomas knew what she was doing i mean i'm not sure he actually read her text messages you know on her phone or her emails so did she send these out to the white house without clarence knowing it I would assume that that's plausible. I would think if she were, you know, concerned about her husband, she would not have run to buy him first, knowing right. that he then could not sit on those cases. So I don't there, there's a lot that we don't know yet. So maybe the other thought is, well, let's let's subpoena her then and ask her what did she tell her husband? I don't know. Any, any thoughts? I, I, how bad would that look? That they subpoena her because because right now we're in a democratically controlled Congress. Right. And the Democrats are itching to do anything to smear Republicans like Republicans itch to do anything. Democrats. Right. Um, They subpoena her and and then Congress subpoenas Clarence Thomas. That they won't be able to do. But I do believe they are going to subpoena her. They're going to try. Are they not? going? Well, if Clarence Thomas has nothing to hide, why doesn't he come and testify in front of Congress? I if think it's just difficult. If, if you're right. a current justice ruling on cases, that's a whole different matter. But they can no, ask her, "What did you tell?" Right. But then they do they then hold her, try to hold her in contempt of court, and then what do we? I mean, it's it's all the in my head. It's all these optics, right? How is this going to look? How is this going to make make everything look? And and I and I know Clarence Thomas is a smart man. I know he's a very smart man, and I know his wife is a very smart woman. It's do. you it would have optically looked better 
if Clarence Thomas would have stepped aside and said, um, I'm a little too close to this issue. I'm not going to disclose why. I'm going to recuse myself from this case. Optically would have looked, I think it would have looked better. Right. I don't know. If that, I, I don't know you. if that's true. Everything else. Like it's when you put the court above all else and say, you know what? I don't know how this is going to fa- fail out. I don't know what's going on. I know my wife is into very conservative politics. She's a very big Donald Trump supporter. And I'm grateful we live in a nation where my wife can be politically active and it doesn't affect my career. But I feel that I'll take a step back and let this play out the way it should, because there's still like, there's still a majority of the Supreme court that would, I mean, they're not going to protect Donald Trump. I mean, they're not going to, they're the justices. I have faith in Roberts and Gorsuch and, and even some levels, Kavanaugh and Barrett. They're, they're going to protect the nation. They're not going to protect Donald Trump. So I don't think there was a, there was going to be some four, four split that Clarence Thomas was going to have to be the deal breaker for. Well, that actually is a good point. He was not the deal breaker in the cases before the Supreme Court. Right. In fact, it was an eight to one decision. Eight right. justices said, no, we need to, uh, you can't quash a subpoena, turn over the documents. Right. Who was the one dissenter? Clarence so Thomas. No, it was Clarence Thomas. Uh, he actually oh, yeah. was the lone dissenter in that. So I guess that's not a good look. But also he mm-hmm. knew he wasn't the decider. If he had been right. the, 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 the deciding vote, then that would have been a whole different issue. And then that right. we probably would have wanted to have known, okay, what did you know? Uh, did you actually know that your wife's exactly. emails were a part of these documents you're trying to suppress? I have to think uh, either one, he did not know that, or he's thought, well, I'm not going to, I'm not the deciding vote, so it really doesn't matter. I want this opinion out there so it can be recorded as a dissent. Now, this is not the final word uh, or final mm-hmm. matter here. There is another case percolating below as to whether or not Donald Trump violated the law regarding this um, uh, January 6th incident. Did he actually? play a pivotal role in inciting it right that case very well might end up before the u.s supreme court and so this whole issue of recusal is going to come back up again at that moment in time yeah all right moving on now to i know a case that you are very interested in trevor bauer v the athletic media company this was just filed this last week and i know both you and i are really excited about this case for mm-hmm. many different reasons. Maybe I actually should spell out one of the reasons why we are not excited about the case, but go ahead, lay the factual predicate for this case. All right. So for those at home, we don't talk about baseball a lot. So I'm going to set who Trevor Bauer is. Uh, Trevor Bauer used to play is a pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers before that Cincinnati Reds before that are Arizona Diamondbacks. Trevor Trevor Bauer was a Cy Young winner um, in 2021, the 2020-2021 season. Uh, Cy Young is the highest award you could get for being a pitcher in the Major League Baseball. He had an amazing season, and he's an amazing pitcher. After his Cy Young award, he was traded to the Los Angeles Dodgers for an insane amount of money. I believe it was a a three-year contract, $208 million with $105 guaranteed. Wow. Right? So he won the Cy Young. He went from a $3 million a year pitcher to a 75-ish million dollar or $80 million a year pitcher by winning this award. Trevor Young, uh, Trevor, I'm sorry, not Trevor Young, Trevor Bauer was then in the early part of the 2021-2022 season. um, Was accused of sexual misconduct. He was a couple of women 
came out and said that Trevor had sexually assaulted them. Okay. They they said that they engaged in um, sexual acts with Trevor Bauer, but he beat them up. He roughed them up a little bit, um, cracked or fractured their skulls, and decided to um, sue him for damages now that he's worth $100 million. Okay. Not, to, not to say that there was motive behind that. I don't want to put that out there. Just facts it is what it is. Right. So Trevor, um, the the one female. Now hold on, so I want you to pause okay. right there because when you said that he fractured her skull, that was mm-hmm. one part of the, the the allegations. That's huge. I mean, that, that's that a deal breaker huge. right there. Because uh, before you're just simply saying the engaged in sex that was rough. Right. Oh, okay. Well, that we want more details. Maybe how salacious you want to make this. I don't know, but right. That's one thing. But when you fracture someone's skull, that's more I, than just I, rough sex. Exactly. That that clearly goes beyond any bounds. So now this guy is guilty. Should never uh, throw another ball uh, in the major leagues. Correct. So, okay. um, and again, if you commit a crime, you need to do the time. That's that's the deal here. Especially if you're some hoity-toity baseball player that thinks they can beat up on women because they're right. a Cy Young winner. Throw away um, the key. Right. So Trevor Bauer did probably the smartest thing that any any person could do. He he was suspended by the MLB pending investigation, which is the MLB's prerogative. He went he went dark. He stayed in his house. He stopped po- and and Trevor Bauer is a social media like savant. His brand Bauer outage, um, the whole nine yards is very prevalent on social media on all of the social media channels. He's always posting. He shut everything down and stayed in okay. his house, made no comments, listened to his attorneys, and just sat there and did nothing. Well, during that time, the the uh, online um, publication called The Athletic, which has become kind of a big uh, media outlet, it, I would say it rivals almost Sports Illustrated at this point. That's why the New York Times purchased it um, in late 2021, early 2022. Um, the Athletic uh, and their reporter, Molly Knight, quote-unquote, received the CT scans noticed in the CT scans from the victim that Trevor Bauer had indeed fractured her skull. So they ran with the story that Trevor Bauer sexually assaulted this woman. Okay. Well, and now, fractured her skull and fractured her skull. So Trevor Bauer is a rapist. He beats women. These are all very detrimental things to a high profile pitcher in any ball club, but especially the Los Angeles Dodgers. Right. So Los Angeles Dodgers canceled his contract for the year, uh, morality clauses because they're it's a business. Um, so Trevor Bauer missed out on 105 ish million bucks, and the female, um, the female victim, alleged victim, filed a restraining order against Trevor Bauer, which was denied. Filed the lawsuit against Trevor Bauer, which was settled for much, much, much less, but not a disclosed amount than what it was for. It didn't even make it to um, voir dire before settling out of court. Um, And now Trevor Bauer is taking the next step and he is suing the athletic and Molly Knight for defamation. Ah, so here we are. Defamation, like we talked about in the Sarah Palin case, there has to be a knowing passing of lies that cause damages and it has to be communicated to a third party. So the idea is that the the athletic and uh, yeah, the athletic and the, the reporter, the reporter, they ran with a story that mm-hmm. Trevor Bauer sexually yep. assaulted these women and fractured their skulls, and he is right. saying they knew better. They actually had the medical 
documents right. in their possession that they knew her skull was not fractured. They right. ran with it anyways. Now, right. Again, Chris, we had got to be careful. We were just very careful. Whenever you comment on these kind of stories, it's difficult because we don't know what actually happened. If there right. was a sexual assault, minus the skull fracturing, right. you still throw them away lucky. I don't want him pitching right. again as a horrible thing. I don't want you playing for my ball club. I don't want to root for you. You can't treat women that way. Correct. But we all admit when you throw in there that the skull has been fractured, right. that takes it to a whole other level of believability. And if that's not true, and they knew it wasn't true, at what point does the media company become liable for damages? I think it's at that point where they knowingly, excuse me, where they knowingly look at the CT report and and see that there's no skull fracture and say, oh, there's a skull fracture. At minimum, at minimum, they should have got the CT CT report, the CT scan, and said, I'm not a doctor. I can't answer this question. Right. And and go to a doctor or a medical expert or even somebody on staff that's done medical whatever and go, show me where the skull fracture's at. And they didn't. They looked at the CT scan goes, that's a skull fracture. And they put it out and said, look, Trevor Bauer fractured this girl's skull while he was raping her. Neither of which have been proven to be true. And I mean, that obviously those are huge allegations. Those are ginormous allegations. And here's the problem. Let's just say you did not run with the skull fracturing part of the story. The story mm-hmm. still is an amazing story. Uh, that he sexually assaulted someone, and he's yeah. a baseball player worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and it probably is going to lose his contract. Right. Why not just run with that as your story? Why add in the extra part when it's not true? I guess the reporter thinks this makes it a slam dunk story. I don't know, mm-hmm. but here's the deal. If you're caught in a lie there, what else are you lying about? It almost That's makes all it, yeah. the parts of your story, when you, when you lie about that, it just makes us, it's kind of like the Brian Flores lawsuit. When you engage in overreach and overstatement, in that case, I think some of it was out and out lying, it mm-hmm. just makes you doubt all the other parts of your claims that might be valid and true. It just That's why you got to be so careful, I think, as lawyers and as clients that have lawyers, right. don't have your lawyer misstate things or exaggerate things beyond what is right. a normal, acceptable level of exaggeration. Uh, and so... I don't know. Uh, Again, we we point out this might be different than the Sarah Palin case because we just came through the Sarah Palin trial where their reporter had an attachment to an email that showed that what they said was was uh, not true. But the thought Mm -hmm. was, well, we didn't read that attachment. Right. And so it is a high standard. uh, It It is a high bar. And so I don't know. I, and I think that's where it delineates, right? The, the reporter had plausible deniability to say, I didn't open the attachment and the court goes okay you can't prove that he opened the attachment and that therefore it wasn't malicious this one they're like yeah we pulled out the ct scan we looked at it we saw what we thought was a crack in the skull it could have just been i i I would assume their defense is going to be she looked at it she's a lay person it looked like a crack but All right. Well, we will be we'll following see. that case as it's going on and see what happens. I, um, it'd be a fascinating case to follow, both from a First Amendment standpoint of what oh, kind of rights, so. at what point are we going to hold media companies liable for their uh, stories that are not true? Then also from a sports standpoint, what's going to happen to these $100 million contracts? Will it be allowed to be just canceled when mm-hmm. a person violates their morals clause, especially in these contexts when there might be a, you know, a lot of area for not believing the person that is making the claims. 
Next, I want to talk about this, I think, very interesting legal order from a court involving Jerry Seinfeld. Right. Now, Jerry Seinfeld is one of my favorite comedians. I've watched every single episode of Seinfeld many times over. I can pretty much tell you every episode from one word or phrase. Chris, are you a Seinfeld fan? Not that level of Seinfeld. I enjoy it when watching it on reruns and when it was live, but I, I'm not married to the seasons. They're they're there. Well, I want to I want to culturally relevant. I want to test you and see what kind of Seinfeld fan you oh, are. Let's say you order your soup in not the right way. No what is you. the appropriate response? No soup see, you. all right, at least you got that. You come back all right. one year. <laughs> all right, all right. I want to test you a little bit, a little bit harder now. Mm -hmm. Let's say you go to a public restroom and there is no toilet paper. What do you ask the person in the next stall? No. <laughs> I stumped you. You did. All right, all right. That one. Is, all right. So now I know the level of, okay. of Seinfeld fan you are. You're about, a, let's just say, a two on a scale of one to a hundred. Okay, cool. But nonetheless, um, the, the, the proper response is, can you spare a square? <laughs> I just had a couple of thoughts of asking you a couple of other ones, but I'm just going to stop right there. Uh, but nonetheless, the move on Jerry Seinfeld was sued because he has this comedy on Netflix called Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Mm -hmm. Now, I have seen this. It is hilarious. I am so envious. He drives around in these cool cars, and he picks up other comedians, and they just have a conversation. That's great. Where they're talking about whatever it is to talk about, about their, their comedy routine, about whatever's in the news, mm -hmm. and then they drink a nice cup of coffee. All right. He was sued saying that he stole that idea from someone else. Well, uh, his lawyers filed a motion to dismiss in that case, claiming that the plaintiff waited too long to sue. Okay. So we're talking about a statute of limitations defense. So right there, lawyer listeners, you know that's not going to take a lot of research. Right? right? I mean, if the case is about you filed it too late, that's pretty easy to defend. Now you're probably going to do some other work as well. You're going to probably take some discovery as well, but this isn't going to be one of those very difficult cases to argue. I mean, limited briefing is going to be needed on that issue. Oh, you filed it too late. And so that that's a pretty simple issue. Nonetheless, Jerry Seinfeld's lawyers, they won the case. Yep. So it was dismissed. How much would you pay for that legal representation. So you did a, you filed a motion to dismiss a lawsuit okay. because the other side filed it out of time. What do you think the reasonable rate should be for that kind of work? Okay. Client meeting, reviewing the file, writing the motion, showing up to court. Let's say I'm a thousand bucks an hour because I'm I'm charging Jerry Seinfeld. I would say somewhere in the right, realm right. of like at most 10 grand. 15 grand. 10 grand. 10 grand, 15 grand I, I, at most. I agree. You know what? I can do a Westlaw research. I would have that answer for you in a couple of hours. Right. I might take a week. Right. It's not going to take me any longer than a week right. to fully brief that case and to, to file a grand slam winning argument. Hey, they filed right. this out of time. You might take a couple of depositions. I don't know. If that. Here is a problem. Sometimes lawyers get what's called a cash cow of a client. Like, oh, we have a client here who is paying the bill. 
So let's ratchet up our fees. Since we know this is a winning case, let's purposely charge a lot more. So they're going to do the work. Let's just do so much work under this thought of, yeah, we want to make sure every single door is explored, every cook, crook, and cranny, and let's just pour all of our time in this case because we got a live one on the hook, right? They know they got Jerry Seinfeld, and also they have the other side. If they win this case, will have to pay the fees. Right. So his lawyers sought, they won a case, they sought $1 million in fees from the plaintiff for filing this lawsuit. I want to do that. A million dollars. I want to do that. That's that. That's good work. Well, Judge Nathan dismissed this case uh, and then said that to Jerry Seinfeld's lawyers, no, this is ridiculous. You cannot claim $1 million for a case like this. And so they reduced their fee to $29,000. And so, I don't know, I just find it interesting that a judge would slash the lawyer's fees almost a million dollars. I mean, it went from a million to $29,000 saying you should not have viewed this as a cash cow and milk this for all it's worth. You got to have some kind of concept of what the actual legal issues are at play mm -hmm. and then litigate appropriately. I don't know. Any thoughts on no, this? No, I oftentimes lawyers go for the, the most possible money, right? You miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. So right. I'll submit a bill for a million bucks. And if I get a million bucks, rock on. If I get the actual money I'm owed, then I'll get that. But I I, and I think there should be some if I don't know if there should be some ethical rule or something to that. If if it's grossly disproportionate, right, if you come in with a bill for a million dollars and you only did 30K worth of work, there needs to be some slapping on the wrist to say, stop doing this because. We yes. don't want people to constantly do this. We don't want judges wasting their time ruling on frivolous. I like. I can understand if you did forty-five k, and the judge came back and said, "You know what? These two depositions you didn't use, you didn't need. We're kicking those out. You're going to reduce the award to to thirty k, right?" I could get that, but when you go a million bucks and you're really only owed thirty k, come on, man. Right. Like, yeah. Come on. Get 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 what you should you should be punished. Like you should be then required to donate or sanctioned a million bucks to the charity of the other party's choosing. And I think now these lawyers are gonna have a hard time going after their client, Jerry Seinfeld, for these fees. If right. indeed they spent that much time. And I can't do that math in my head on the spot, but you take a million dollars divided by a thousand dollars an hour. That's a lot of time that that firm spent on that case. Yep. If indeed they did spend that time, could they now really go after their client, Jerry Seinfeld? Surely there's a retainer agreement right. saying that Jerry's liable to pay these fees. But here's a quick thought for you. No, because you can only bill your client a reasonable amount of fees. And so here in this case, if a judge just said this isn't reasonable, did the judges not simply gut the lawyer's right. ability to go after their client for recovery of these fees? That very well might be the case. I, I right. totally think that right. I 100% think that when a judge goes, no, you didn't do this, you're only getting this amount of money, the, the lawyers can't go back. What are they going to go judge shop? They're going to go, go, right, right, go. Right, exactly. I know that judge Burns over in department four said, I don't have a case, but you know, but judge Marone in department seven is going to give me the $970,000 that I'm owed. 
Moving on now to the Supreme Court in Ramirez v. Collier issued a decision this week. And so this was a case involving Texas has this, uh, was executing this prisoner, mm-hmm. and this prisoner wanted his own pastor there in the execution chambers right. laying hands on the prisoner and praying for the prisoner while the prisoner was being executed. Right. And that case went before the U.S. Supreme Court of whether or not under RELOPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, can Texas tell that prisoner, no, we're not going to allow you to have your minister there and, and pray for you and, and lay the, your, the hands on the, the prisoner? Right. Well, under a lupa, if, if there's going to be a conflict between a prison policy and a prisoner's religious beliefs, that prison policy has to pass strict scrutiny, right. which means there has to be a compelling a governmental reason for it. And it has to be that government... The, now, policy has to be the least restrictive means of achieving that significant, that compelling governmental interest. The court here in an eight to one decision said, no, this is not uh, the least restrictive means. Mm-hmm. And so the court said that you can find other ways for Texas, whatever your interests are here right. in security and maintaining the decorum of the, 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 the occasion right. of executing a prisoner, whatever your objectives are, you can achieve those in a way that's not that's least yeah that's not so restrictive on the prisoner's religious beliefs and especially their uh, last request before they're executed yes eight eight to one decision the lone dissenter was justice clarence thomas so all right now let's move over to our courtroom quarterback segment Now, we're going to start here, Chris, with a very interesting article I found this last week mm-hmm. about a Jeopardy question. Do you watch Jeopardy? I actually, I don't. Okay. Not since, you not ever since, watched not since Alex Trebek died. I did watch it for a long time. They're just a lot smarter okay. than me. Exactly. You're always impressed with how brilliant these people are. But have you ever thought... I wonder how much they actually know about real stuff yeah. like sports. Well, they were asked this question, and I'm going to ask you this question. Right. I'm going to put you on the spot here to see if you can answer it. And then I'll let you know how they answered yeah. it. Here's the question for you. Now, obviously, this is the answer. you got to flip it around and give me the question. You know how Jeopardy right. is done. Right. What is? Here is the right. Here is the answer. A few career highlights. He won the Heisman at Auburn. Ran for 221 yards in one game for the Raiders and was an AL R star. AL All Star. Yeah. Who is um, Bo Jackson? Is that, is it, was it that tough? No. It, well, no. I, was, I also was a kid when Bo Jackson was playing for the Royals and the Raiders, and he was like a okay. superhero. That he was a two sport yes. athlete. He was insane at both sports. And he did that one like perfect catch where he like runs up the wall and robs the home yes. run and comes back down with it. Yeah. Bo Jackson. Yeah. Exactly. I, I live in Kansas City, so I was yep. following Bo Jackson that entire time when he was with the Memphis Chicks and came back up. We right. called him up to you know watch him hit those home runs. He was in the All Star yeah. game, hit a home run, the lead off, an amazing athlete. I think he's probably the greatest athlete of our time. I would, yeah. I mean, what other player can you na- name that was at the highest of his sport in two different sports? Right. I mean, he was the best running back in the NFL and then probably one of the best outfielders in Major League Baseball. I can't think of anyone else at the top of two different sports at the same time. Well, these three Jeopardy contestants, 
they were caught looking. <laughs> no one even hit their buzzer to offer up a guess. And so, hey, you have one now on the Jeopardy Woo. contestants. All right, moving on now to what else is going on in the world of of um of sports. Bruce Arians retired yeah. this morning. Uh, kind of shocked a lot of people, right? And did you did you catch his replacement? I believe he's being he's being replaced by Coach. Tom Brady. So not not a bad call. <laughs> Tom Brady is stepping in to the coaching position. Well, I also have to think, and I think a lot of us are out here speculating that that was part of Brady's return was that Arias right. would move on. Um because they didn't get along. Now this this hurts me deep because this squashes any thoughts of Tom Brady going to San Francisco. That, well, yeah, now that you had the first player coach in, uh, in NFL history, several years at the NFL, you probably go back in the 40s and 50s. Right. Maybe there might have been one. I don't know. Right. But yeah, now Todd, the, the actual, I was just kidding, I, the actual coach is replacing Bruce Arians is Todd Bowles, mm-hmm. who was a defensive coordinator at Tampa. More on him in just a yep. bit. But he's not going to know much about the offense. So clearly, this is going to be Tom Brady's offense to run. We might see a um, uh, a real, you know, player coach here right. in the NFL. But why? I mean, it's Tom Brady, all right? I'd be worried about like Tua or Burrow or uh, Trevor Lawrence being player coaches. It's Tom right. Brady. He's the elder statesman of the sport at this point, right? Well, I was reading the other day that between Tom Brady's Super Bowl wins, between his first Super Bowl win and his last Super Bowl win, um, Troy Palomalo was drafted played and was inducted into the pro football hall of fame. Wow. So Brady's been there for a minute. (laughs) Wow. He's probably older than most of the NFL um, coaches out there. Well, who is Todd Bowles? The last two Super Bowl coaches. Yeah. Right. Well, Todd Bowles uh, was the former head coach of the New York jets. He was 24 and 40. And I believe for some seasons there at the, the New York jets head coach. So my thought is if you went 24 and 40 as the New York jets head coach, you probably are a Hall of Fame head coach. Uh, and so you probably is a really good coach if he was able to win 24 games for the lowly Jets. Yep. But I guess more on that later. Uh, but yeah, that's an interesting development. Also, this last week, the NFL changed its overtime rules yeah. for the postseason. Now, Chris, I don't know. I have I'm having a hard time with this uh deci- with these articles. Because I when I read this in the articles, most of these articles were written like this. They were saying, look. Because of what happened this last year in the Buffalo-Kansas City Chiefs game, where the Chiefs got the ball first in overtime, they scored a touchdown, Mm -hmm. Buffalo never got the ball, that was just a grave injustice, and we got to fix that Mm -hmm. that inherent unequalness, that the the grave injustice that occurred during that game. Is that the kind of the tenor of the articles you read? Yeah, the and, and don't get me wrong, that game was amazing. That game was one that instant classic, right? Instant classic game. Right, it was. Um, but yeah, that's the thing. More, people wanted more of that game, and I think that's more of a commentary on how bad football's been versus how bad the the rules of overtime are. But I want to call BS on mm-hmm. that because three years earlier, the Chiefs, the same context, right. NFC, yeah, AFC Championship game, the Chiefs played the Patriots. We went to overtime. We lost the coin toss. The Patriots got it. They scored a TD. Game we over. never touched the right. ball. Where was the outcry then? Yes. But the Chiefs did suggest a rule change to the owners. The owner fails 
unanimously rejected it. Like, no, it's not about fairness. Right. It must be about some kind of anti-Casey bias. I don't know. But I do like this rule change. But don't say it's because you want fairness. If you wanted fairness, it would have been done three years ago mm-hmm. when it happened against the Chiefs and not for the Chiefs as it happened this time. Right. Do you like the new rule? So the new rule is both teams get to possess the ball in overtime. Is that your, is that your understanding? Yes. I, I don't like this rule. Nah, I, I, I can yeah, tell you. Why don't you like it? Here's why. Hit me. Here's why. Here's what's going to happen. Uh, the, let's just say the exact same scenario happened, which has happened with the Chiefs. The Chiefs are going to get the ball. They're going to score a touchdown. Buffalo's going to get the ball. They're going to score a touchdown. The Chiefs are going to get the ball. They're going to kick a field goal, and everyone's going to complain. <laughs> hey, Buffalo did not get to touch the ball twice. Right. This isn't fair. You, we should allow both teams to touch the ball twice. Is that where this is going, where both teams are going to get equal touches during the the, the, off, the overtime? I don't know. It might, depending on how it rolls out. I think that uh, I, we, I have problems with the NFL on a multitude of reasons, trying to overcompensate for the fact that they want to somehow make more money. At the end of the day, they didn't see the rule change when it was Kansas City because it didn't matter to them. The Patriots are the big draw. Now that the Bills and the Chiefs and everybody had a great game. Now it's like, oh, we need to evaluate. We need to change because we can make more money. And at the end of the day, that's what they're looking at. So they 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 could they could in five years could come back and go, you know, this really screwed, you know, Tom Brady. Um, so we need to come back and figure out how we could change these rules. So that way the Buccaneers would have gotten, you know, 16 possessions to match the 15 possessions of the Kansas City <laughs> right, Chiefs. Right, right. right. I don't put that past I, I Roger that, Goodell. I really don't. I think you hit the nail on the head right there. It is about, it's the postseason. It's the NFL. All eyes are watching the NFL playoffs. Right. And if you are in overtime, Everyone oh is gosh. really the watching. Ratings. So why not find oh, yeah. a way to extend that game? Well, yeah. And then it's, it will, the Bills Chiefs rivalry now is going to be insane, right? The Bills Mafia, Chiefs fans, you know, the Chiefs donated to a uh, Bills charity. The Bills were donating. Like, it, they see the good in this rivalry, and rivalries make money. U of A, Arizona State, we are in football, we're going nowhere. Both teams. But that rivalry game is sold out for weeks. Merch is bought for weeks. Food is jacked up. Restaurants, hotels, everything. Rivalries sell. Well, so I think it's they're going to keep riding that wave. Well, there you go. I'll let you have the last word in this week's podcast. Oh. March Madness is right around the corner. Uh, you're on your way to New Orleans to enjoy the greatest morsel of food ever <laughs> at Drago's. And then you're going to go over to and get a nice uh, beignet there at the um, uh, Cafe Dumont. I am so jealous. If you can get tickets to the Final Four, wow, what a, a weekend that will be. But hey, go say hi to Bill Self for me and have a great week. See you, Joel. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star review. We need your love to help us continue highlighting the funnier side of the law. I want to give a special shout-out to our Vice President of Operations, Wendy Oster, without whom this entire operation would be a complete and utter mess. Sean Wynn and 15.5 Features for making me sound way better than I actually do. Brooke Bolin for our marketing efforts. And Ryan Kuhn and Paul Kuhn of Tri. Plus City Marketing for our technical and computer support.